As you're taking your seats, you can go ahead and grab your Bible and open them to 1 Peter chapter 3. We have been diving back into 1 Peter as we've kind of studied our way through. We took a bit of a break, and last week we jumped back in, and we were looking at what Peter has to say about marriage, and in particular, the apologetic value of marriage. In other words, um, Peter is saying that the way that Christians live um, in the context of the institution of marriage It's an opportunity to proclaim and display the power and the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that is true, it's imperative, Peter wants us to know, that we understand how we are to operate within this institution of marriage, how husbands and wives are to live in the context of marriage. Last week, we looked at the role of the wife, and this week, we're looking at the role of the husband. Marriage is a beautiful institution. It is ordained by and created by God, and it is oftentimes filled with so much joy because it joins two people together in one flesh. But if we're honest, in a fallen world, it's also very difficult. Marriage is often very discouraging, and it's actually disappointing because it unites two sinners together. We are told by this world to look for our soulmate believing that life will be all unicorns and rainbows once we find them. But, as Stanley Hauerwas points out, even though we imagine that there is someone just right for us to marry, we dream that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. He says, but we always marry the wrong person. If we pause for just a moment, we know that we are actually the wrong person too. Furthermore, he says this, he says, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. If nothing else, we understand this, marriage itself will actually change us. In short, really, no two people are compatible. Flaws that once seemed tiny, even endearing in the dating days, actually begin to loom large. This intimate relationship that is at times the sweetest thing on earth can also become the hardest thing on earth. Again, Stanley Hauerwas says this, he says, the primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. You're like, Ian, I thought marriage was supposed to be good. It is. And yet we have to recognize that it is actually quite challenging in a fallen world. You know, good marriages are hard work. They require constant effort and attention. And by God's grace, they can get better and better over time. Yet, as we look around us, what we see is that divorce rates continue to climb. Marriage is actually in decline itself. In the world around us, marriage is diminished and devalued, but God places such a high priority on marriage. In the Christian marriage, it has so much to offer the world. It is to be a display of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But for that to be a reality, both spouses must strive to be Christ-like. So if you're here this morning and you're married, your goal is going to be the same as, as if you're here today and you're single. It is to be Christ-like. 
This is the call on the Christian life, and here Peter wants to simply take that call for all of us, and he wants to apply it into a specific arena of our lives in the institution of marriage. But there is something here for everybody, married or single. There is the call to be like Jesus. One verse, Peter simply says this to husbands in verse 7 of chapter 3. He says, likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We saw last week that a Christ-like wife is to focus on certain things, and this week I want to take the same approach, and I want you to notice this first, that a Christ-like husband focuses on this, the learning, not the lording. Here, Peter makes this statement, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Peter has been focusing on three different spheres of relationships. They're all kind of knit together by this common thread of submission and how in these spheres of life we can most powerfully display the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's again looked at how we relate to those governing authorities over us. He's looked at how we relate uh, slaves to masters or employee employers, and now he's looked at, at husbands and wives. He spent the bulk of his time, let me just remind you for clarity's sake, he spent the bulk of the time focusing on those who are most likely to be oppressed by those who are in positions of authority and power. And again, the parallel with the individual who's oppressed is the church of Jesus Christ, in the world around us, the world seems like they're the ones in power. They have all the authority, and it is the church of Jesus Christ who is most likely to be oppressed. And so here, he simply is looking at these areas as a microcosm of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be uh, the church of Jesus Christ. And he actually says that the value of these things should not be overlooked. They have the potential of displaying the beauty of the gospel or diminishing the beauty of the gospel, depending upon how we live in the context of these relationships. Since the husband's role is different, he is called to be the primary leader in the relationship, the form of his service is different. We saw last week that the wife is called to be submissive to her husband, to honor him in that way. And the husband here is now called, notice, to honor his wife in a very specific way. That honor includes a considerate use of his God-given authority. Now, men typically have two ditches that they are inclined to fall into when it comes to their role as, they le as the leader in their marriage and in their home. They either fall into the ditch of lording their authority over their wives or of leaving their authority. They either become authoritarian or domineering or they're inclined to become passive and lazy. In Paul's day, the problem was for sure this idea of lording their authority, of abusing their authority, of belittling their wives, of abusing their wives. But I would say this, in our culture, I think that's, that's oftentimes the case, but for every home that is crippled by male abuse of authority, several homes suffer from husbands and fathers who refuse to lead. For every man who dominates, Several abdicate. 
They come home, they flop down on the couch, they plug themselves in to some kind of device or some kind of a program, and they ignore everyone around them. The sins of domination, let me just be very clear, are catastrophic, and and I think they are far more dangerous, especially if they include violence and abuse and make Make one thing clear, let me make one thing clear. This here is for sure stating that that has no place in marriage. There is to be no abuse, there is to be no violence towards women. The Bible does not advocate that, though that was common in the culture of Paul's day. It is to be nowhere found in the church of Jesus Christ. But I would also say that sins of passivity are far far more common in today's day and age. And I can just tell you, maybe from a pastoral perspective, I think there are more wives who lament an absentee husband than a domineering husband in the church. Either way, either way, the antidote is found right here in the word of God. It is a call for husbands to live with their wives in in an understanding way. Now that word understanding way, the way that's been translated is helpful, but let me give you a more literal translation. It means this, according to knowledge. Men, husbands, you are called to live with your wives according to knowledge. Now that can mean a number of things. The knowledge that Peter intends here may include any knowledge that would be beneficial to the husband and wife relationship. And I think there's a a broad sense to what Peter is saying here. He's saying, listen, men, you need to become learners. You need to know how to live in the context of marriage in a way that pleases God, in a way that helps your wife flourish, in a way that helps your marriage display the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this isn't going to be something that is natural to you. It is unnatural, so it's going to take some intentionality. You're going to actually have to get ready and get after this. I want to give you three ways in which I think husbands especially, you need to live with your wife according to knowledge or in an understanding way. Some things you need to learn and you need to be intentional about learning. Three ways you can do this. First, learn your God. Learn your God. Knowledge of God as a person, who he is, the person of Jesus Christ, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowledge of God's purposes and and principles for life and marriage. It's imperative that you become a student of God's word. This is, is the kind of knowledge that can only be gained through a regular, consistent, intentional study of God's word. This is an area, men, if I could just have your attention for a moment, this is an area of your life you cannot afford to be lazy. You cannot afford to be passive. Your spiritual life is essential for you to be able to provide healthy spiritual atmosphere and climate and involvement in your wife's life. You must be a man after God. You must have a heart for the things of the Lord. You must long to meet with the Lord. You must see your desperate need to daily be in the presence of God through his word. This is essential for you as an individual if you're single here. I mean, this is still a call for you. This is the kind of person you must strive to be. And if you're married, you must see that you will never be the kind of husband that you were called to be, you're supposed to be, unless you are regularly and faithfully meeting with the Lord himself. 
Man, your greatest responsibility is to be a lifelong student of God and his word. You must be a hearer and a doer. Let me give you a second way to do this. You need to learn your role. You need to learn your role. And as you study God's word, you will begin to see this clearer and clearer. You'll begin to see what God expects of you as a man, as a follower of Jesus Christ, and as a husband. You must know God's plan for marriage. You must be acutely aware that marriage is something that is precious to God. It is something that was created by God before the fall. Do you realize that the the Bible begins with marriage and it ends with marriage? And right in the middle, we have this beautiful picture of marriage with the gospel of Jesus Christ as the very heart of marriage. You must see that your marriage has apologetic value, as Peter is making clear, that it has theological underpinnings that strengthen your commitment to your marriage. You must be able to go through the word of God and see how highly God values marriage and how precious it is to him. Uh, Let me just give you an example of this in terms of understanding your role. I mean, you need to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible to begin to see how God designed marriage. That God created man and woman um, to live together in a one flesh relationship. That they were to be companions and friends and partners you get a glimpse, too, on how man and woman and husband and wife are supposed to function together. All you have to do to see both what was supposed to be and how it was ruined is go to Genesis chapter 3. It's really interesting as you simply look at that one chapter which lays out the fall of humanity. We actually see very powerfully what marriage was supposed to, in some senses, look like. You know the story, Adam and Eve are in the garden together. There's Adam and Eve, they're living life in perfect harmony. There is no more sin, or there is no sin yet, excuse me. You see, what was Adam supposed to be doing? Well, the first thing he was supposed to be doing was living with his wife as her provider. I want you to just consider the the moment when Eve was tempted by the, the serpent. Adam and Eve are there. By the way, many people ask this question, I mean, where is Adam? Where was Adam while Eve was being tempted? Just look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. You want to know where Adam was? He was right there with her. This gives you a glimpse at where Adam began to falter. You see, here, here is this serpent who is tempting Eve. You remember what he said, right? You remember, just remember the setting. God said, I'm going to give you all of the trees in this garden. You can eat from all of them. And, you know, we were sitting around our, our dinner table the, the other week with our kids, and we were walking through. I can't remember what exactly we were talking about, but we came back to the garden, and we were talking about how God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. And he, gave, he said, you can have all of this. And I said to my kids, I said, and God said, there was one thing you couldn't do. He looked at Adam and Eve, and he said, you couldn't eat What? My youngest son, who's four years old, with all of the confidence that a four-year-old can muster, looked at me dead in the eyes and said, he said you couldn't eat the vegetables. (laughs) And I looked at his plate, and it was heaped up with vegetables. Listen, pastor's kids are just kids, okay? Okay. 
But as God tempted Eve, or excuse me, Satan tempted Eve to eat the, the fruit of the tree, you want to know what Adam should have been doing? Adam should have recognized his role as provider. He, he should have said, listen, Satan shouldn't be offering you any of this serpent. Don't, don't worry about what this serpent has to offer you. Let me go get you some fruit that we're allowed to eat. Let me serve you. Let me provide for you. I mean, we've been working this garden together. Let me go pick you some vegetables. But instead, he didn't. He didn't provide for her. He watched Satan provide an alternative to what God had said was okay. And that reminds us of the second role of the husband as the protector. I mean, listen, what should Adam have done in that moment? Listen, the first clue is this, that if you see a talking serpent, there's a problem. This was foreign to the, here's what you have to understand, that was foreign to the garden context. You wanna know what Adam should have done? He should have recognized, this is not normal, this is not okay. Adam should have walked up to that serpent, grabbed it by its little serpent neck, swung it around like a lasso, and threw it as far as he could out of the garden. That's actually implied, do you realize? Do you realize it's implied in the text that Satan, the servant, had no place being in the garden. Adam's responsibility was to protect his wife, to protect his family by ridding the, keeping the garden pure and devoted to God. No evil in this place. And listen, how many Christian men allow or even bring um, sin and evil into their own homes? And yet the call of the husband is to be a protector, yes, physically, but spiritually to be a protector. And I want to maybe make this last point, listen, is that the husband should have been the pointer. The primary role of the husband in a godly marriage is to be a pointer, listen, to the glory of Jesus Christ. He should have run up beside his wife in that garden. He should have said, he said, listen, let me remind you that this Satan is attacking the word of God. Let me remind, let me encourage you. Let's hold fast together. Our God is worthy of being trusted. I know this is tempting, I know this is hard in this moment, but listen, let me point you to what matters most, the glory of our God who loves us. He is good to us. You know, in a healthy marriage, this is for sure the responsibility of the husband to be the primary pointer to God and to his glory. To constantly be talking about the things of God. Men, let me ask you, do you spur your wife, your spouse on towards the glory of God? Do you encourage her in her walk with the Lord? Are you speaking words of truth? Are you edifying her? We get to do this together, helping each other fix our gaze upon Jesus Christ. Husband and wives, let me ask you, do you tie? This is amazing to me, and here, I, I need to say this. This sounds so obvious, but here's the problem. This is actually a rarity in so many Christian homes. Do you talk about the word of God together? Do you talk about what God is teaching you personally in your study of God's word? Do you sit down with one another, and do you actually encourage each other in the word of God? Let me ask you this, and again, this, is, this shouldn't be such, I think, a difficult question to have to ask, but let me ask you this, are you actually in the word together? It's staggering to me. And I, I, listen, let me, let me just say this too right out of the gates. Anytime I preach a sermon on what it means to be a godly husband, can I just let you know, I feel the weight of this more than you do. 
This is, this is uh, you know, we were praying in the back, and I said, you know, you know what the pastor's plight is? The pastor's privilege and plight is this. The pastor's privilege is he gets to get up and herald the word of God and say, this is what God says. The pastor's plight is every time he does it, he gets to say, and this is who I need to be, and this is who I'm not quite yet. And so I just, can I just let you know that I just say things? I'm with you in this, and I, I, I have so much room to grow, and the, the Lord convicts me, especially when I preach on these things. I mean, that, that I just have so much room to grow. But let me just encourage you, men. Listen, I've seen this in my own life. There are, are periods of time where we, we haven't talked much about the Word, or we're not reading the Bible together. And can I just encourage you? You need to be people who are in the Word of God together, holding fast to the truth together. This shouldn't be a rarity in the Christian marriage. It should be the norm. Let me give you the final way in which you can learn, and that's this. You need to, men, learn your wife. You learn your God, you learn your role, you learn your wife. Did you notice what he says here? Live with your wives in an understanding way. Men, here's some good news. It doesn't tell you you need to learn women because that's impossible. (laughs) You are called to learn your wife, your specific wife, the the wife that God has given to you. You are called by God to live with her and understand according to knowledge. You need to have knowledge of her desires, of her goals, of her frustrations. You need to have a knowledge of, of her preferences, her moods, her needs, her hurts, her fears, her struggles. You need to be the most intimate person in her life. You need to foster the deepest friendship she's ever experienced in this life. And listen, this requires regular, unhurried times of intentional moments together. So men, let me encourage you. You're looking at this and you're saying, man, you know, Pastor Ian, I feel like you. I've got a long way to go. Well, let me encourage you to take the first step. Men, you need to be in the word. You need to understand what God's calling you to, but you need to learn your wife and you need to start now. Let me encourage you, men, take your wife out regularly, just the two of you. Or if you don't wanna go out, fine, stay in. Make her dinner, make a coffee, sit on the couch, look at each other and talk to each other. Ask questions of your wife. Ask her about her struggles. Ask her about her joys. Ask her about what hurt her. Ask her about her fears. Get into her heart. Get to know her in deeper ways. A husband who focuses on learning, not the lording, will greatly enrich his marriage. Secondly, note this, the Christ-like husband focuses on the worth, not the weakness. The worth, not the weakness. It says next, that husbands are to be showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Men, you are called to honor your wives. And in effect, what Peter is saying is, here is how you are going to be able to love her well and live according to knowledge. You must see that God has called you to highly value the woman that he has given you. In what sense are women weaker? Maybe he says to honor her as the weaker vessel. Well, nothing in the New Testament suggests that women are intellectually inferior um, to men or that women are weaker emotionally than men, nor did Peter suggest that women are weaker morally or spiritually. The most obvious meaning here is this, that women are, are simply weaker when it comes to physical strength. 
Actually, Peter uses the word for female here instead of wife. He uses the word for woman instead of wife. He could have chosen wife. And you know what he's doing is he's directing our attention to what is uniquely feminine about women. He's pointing husbands to knowledge, to the knowledge that God would require them to have of the female sex. He's wanting them to see that biologically God has created them different. They're different than you at a fundamental level. And let me just make it clear. I said this last week, but it bears repeating. Weaker does not mean less valuable. The word of God is very clear that men and women are equal before God, both image bearers of God. They are equal, yet they have different roles. God has not made us exactly the same. And if I could just maybe say it like this, weaker doesn't mean less valuable in a lot of areas in life. Often, actually, weakness is a sign of how precious and valuable something is. I mean, consider just precious metals. In their purest form, they are often structurally weaker. They are softer, more fragile. They are more easily damaged, and yet they are far more valuable. In other words, weakness is often a sign of beauty and worth. It's a reminder that something must be treated a certain way with a certain level of care and attention. We, uh, we grew up in, in my house. Um, my mom had a, a fine china set. Those are kind of passe. I, I, we don't even have a china set. But I, I always remember that we would break the china out for special occasions. It was kept in a separate place. Um, you know, I had a little gold ribbon around it to remind you of how valuable it was. But we, listen, when, when my mom brought out the fine china, I always hated it because I knew I was going to have to wash the dishes by hand. Like, we got a dishwasher. Just shove them in there. But if you know anything about China, you know this, that it is far more valuable than your typical plate. It's supposed to be treated with care. It's more brittle. It's more expensive. And the value of those plates and and all of the other things, it, it, it meant that we needed to treat it with a certain level of care. We couldn't just throw it in the dishwasher. We needed to be sensitive towards it. We needed to care for it. We needed to wash it. It was delicate. We needed to be very careful with how we... We needed to honor it and esteem it properly. And yet, some men are like a bull in a china shop. They treat their wives not like fine china, but like a piece of Tupperware. They don't see the value of the woman that God has given them. And here we're reminded that God has built, in one sense, their value and how precious they are and how men are to care for their wives simply in biology itself. And by the way, um, this is a general statement. I understand that there are some of you men who are married to women who are stronger than you. I'm pretty sure at times my wife could beat me up. But even if your wife, listen, is physically stronger than you, you are to treat her. Don't miss the point here. You're to treat her with the utmost value to you. There should be no other person in your life who is more precious, who you care for with more intentionality than the wife that God has given you. She is to be beautiful and precious in your sight. Man, is your wife precious to you in her weakness, or, listen, is she a problem for you because of her weakness? God calls you to see her worth and value. 
And I think this is exactly what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he said that husbands are to nourish, and listen to this word, cherish their wives. You say, well, how can I do this well? Well, I want to help you just pause, and some of you are already doing this. Some of you are, are by nature very introspective, but some of us men are a little bit, you know, hard-headed, and we actually need to be pressed to think more deeply about this. So I just want to give you men in particular an opportunity just on your own to quickly evaluate yourself. How do you think you're doing when it comes to cherishing your wife, um, to viewing her as valuable and precious to you? So kind of on a scale of, of one to five, maybe you could rate yourself. One is like, man, I don't value my wife at all and I know it. Two is like, I'm doing better than the guy beside me. You might want to look beside you first. Three, it's like, I think I'm doing okay, but man, I got a lot of room to grow. Four is like, man, I see so many uh, strides. Uh, you know, I'm growing, I'm just working on this all the time, and God is blessing you. Five is like, man, you're just knocking it out of the park. None of you are there. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Where do you think you are, man? You got it? Okay, here's the better question. Where does your wife think you are? because that's what matters most. And many of us are inclined to give ourselves a too high of a rating. And so here's your first piece of homework, man. I think this is really important for us. And wives, we need to do this with one another. This isn't just a one-way street. But men, let me encourage you to lead in the things of the Lord. Your homework assignment is when you get home from church, uh, away from the kids, in case things get out of control, uh, simply to sit down with your wife and ask your wife this question, do you feel cherished by me? And men, be humble enough to hear her heart, to hear the answer that she gives wives. I mean, be, be honest, but be, be gentle. <laughs> we, know, we know we're terrible. We know, we know we struggle. But men, we need to be considering how we're doing in this area. And some of you men are already feeling the weight of conviction. By the grace of God, the Spirit of God is already pressing in on your heart like he is on mine because you know you haven't been cherishing your wife. You know that you have been overly fixated upon the weaknesses of your wife and you've been inclined to nitpick your wife, to nag your wife, to belittle your wife. You're constantly pointing out where she's failing and how she's not living up to your expectations. And let me just say this as clearly as possible. Men, you need to stop that. You need to honor the woman that God has given you and see the value and the beauty and how precious. Yes, she has her weaknesses. Yes, she has her sin just like you do. Yes, she fails all the time like you do, but you don't need to keep pointing that out. You need to point out how valuable and precious she is to you. When was the last time you affirmed the beauty and value of your wife? And I would urge you with all the gospel passion I can muster simply if this has been you, if your pattern of behavior and you know it right now has been one of belittling your wife and literally treating her as she's a piece of Tupperware, can I encourage you even today, don't wait till you get home, fall on your face before the living God and ask for forgiveness and help. Then go home and confess to your wife your sin. And begin this very day to make changes. 
Your marriage can be better, it can be more satisfying, and it can be more God-glorifying. And there are some ways in which you can do that. And so let me just give you three quick ways that you can work on this in your life. Men, this is specifically a call for you to, to cherish your wife. Here's one way you can do it. Serve with joy. Serve your wife with joy. Not with anger. Not with frustration in your heart. Not begrudgingly. And when she asks you to, to help with something or to do something, don't, don't snap back at her. Can't you do it? I'm busy over here. I mean, think of one thing you can do every day that you know would serve your wife. And it doesn't have to be that complicated. Just pick up your socks and underwear. Think specifically of ways that you can be a blessing to her, not a burden to her. And to quote my wife, flowers don't clean up the kitchen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Serve with joy, delight in your heart. See it as a blessing. Secondly, sacrifice with love. So men, you're called to, as Paul says, he gives more of the thin theological underpinnings here for us to consider. Men, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, this kind of sacrificial love is supposed to characterize the husband because it characterizes our savior, Jesus Christ. Christ loved the church. How did he love her? He gave of himself for her. Man, what are you giving up to bless your wife? It's been said that love is actually spelled T-I-M-E. And man, we need to be reminded of this, that if we are going to love our wives, we need to spend time with her. We need to sacrifice time at work. Some of us, are really, that is our mistress. That is the one that we seem to be married to. And we need to scale things back so that we can give to our wives the appropriate amount of time for her flourishing. We need to sacrifice even of, of our hobbies, good things that aren't sinful things, but when they, they trump the time we're spending with our wives, when we're pouring more into the things we enjoy, the things we want to do outside of our marriage and our family, we need to hear this. Listen, we're pouring too much time into those things, not enough time into the thing that matters most. What are you pouring yourself into instead of pouring yourself into your wife? Man, this is just, just hear this. This is, this is a call to reject self centeredness in your relationship and to embrace self sacrifice. We are called to wring ourselves out for our wives, for our families. This is what it means to be a godly man. Lastly, let me encourage you to do this speak with tenderness. Man, how do you speak of your wife to others? To your friends at work, do you belittle her? Do you speak poorly of her? Or do you publicly praise her? How do you speak to her? Are you daily affirming her with your words? Do you sincerely appreciate her and does she know it by the way you speak and the way that you serve her? Are you affectionate with your wife? In our house right now, my daughter is getting sick of how much my wife and I show affection towards each other. 
Every time I kiss my wife, and by the way, we make it a point to make sure that we, we kiss each other in front of our kids. We want our kids to see how much we love each other. My daughter looks at me and says, ooh, gross. And like a mature, loving father, I turn around and say, you're gross. <laughs> Listen, I, I, want, I want my wife to know, and I want my kids to see how much I love their mom. Listen, there's a day coming when they're going to be long gone, right? When, when, when my kids are going to look at me like I'm chopped liver, but she's going to be the one who's standing beside me. And I want my kids to see what it means to have a marriage that is filled with love and affection. It's not perfect. You know, we get in arguments. We don't treat each other always respectfully and kindly. But we want our kids to see that we are, we are striving to be Christ-like, that we, we want to humble ourselves and repent, that we want to love and cherish each other the way the Bible calls us to. We want to honor each other the way that God wants us to. And we believe that it's actually painting for them in our own home a picture of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So men, focus on the worth of your wife, not the weaknesses of your wife. And let her weaknesses actually remind you of her worth of how precious she is supposed to be to you. Finally, the Christ-like husband focuses on the blessings, not the burdens. Here, Peter gives us two motivations. He says we need to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since, notice this, here's the reasons, they are heirs with you of the grace of life, and so that your prayers may not be hindered. Two motivations. But let's just ask this question first. Why don't we do this better, men? Why don't we do this more? Why don't we do this at all sometimes in our lives? Why do we struggle to sacrifice our lives, ourselves, for our wives? Why is this so hard? The answer is so obvious, sin and selfishness. We, we, we convince ourselves that our spouse exists for our happiness. Our spouse exists to serve us. When biblically, the mindset is actually to be the exact opposite. I am supposed to live for your joy. I am supposed to sacrifice myself so that you can be more satisfied. I am supposed to love you like Christ loved the church. Deep down inside our sinful hearts, we begin to think of serving as a burden. We look at the cost, we look at what we have to, to give up, and man, I just want you to can we maybe see this in light of the gospel. Can you imagine, by the way, we're the weaker ones in our relationship with Jesus, right? Do we get this? We're the wives in our relationship with Jesus. Can you imagine that, that Jesus looked upon us in our weakness, in our frailty, and he heard us calling out for help? God, help me, I'm so weak, I can't do this, I can't do this alone. He heard us pleading independence upon him, and he looked at us in our sinfulness and our frailty and our weakness, and he said, the burden is too great. It's going to cost me too much. Thanks be to God, that's not the way he looked at us in our weakness. In fact, he looked at us in our weakness, and he did just the opposite. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He looked beyond the burden, and he sacrificially served us. He bore our sins on that tree. He gave everything so that we could live in a restored relationship with him and so that we could experience the joy of him serving us and dealing with our sin once and for all. 
You see, the gospel is supposed to be our great motivator. Jesus is our great model. That's what Peter has already made clear earlier in chapter 2. You see, we look at this and we're like, I, I can't do this. I can't sacrifice it. I can't serve my wife like you're asking. And, and here's my response. I know. I know. Apart from the help of the, the Spirit of God, apart from Jesus Christ in you, you will never be anywhere close to the kind of husband or wife or person that God is calling you to be. But listen, in humility, as you fall on your face before God, as you embrace Him as Lord and Master, day by day, because of what He has done in the cross of Jesus Christ, you can do by His power what He's calling you to do. Some of you are really discouraged, and I just want to really quickly say to you, don't quit. Don't become cynical or jaded. Press on. Look at the blessings that God holds out before you first. Notice this. Here's a sweet blessing to be reminded of. Your wife is an heir with you of the grace of life. Her weakness does not make her lesser. She is your equal. She is your partner, your teammate, your co-laborer in the gospel both made in the image of God, both called by God to image God to the world around you. This was so foreign in the ancient world. Husbands were generally uninterested in friendship with their wives. They expected them to keep the house and bear children. But be friends? But man, you need to see your wife as God sees her. You need to treat her as God treats her. She is God's daughter, a fellow heir to the grace of life. You are both going to the same place. You both get the same reward. You both get to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. And look at this next blessing. He says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. That this is the reward that God promises to the loving, caring husband that God will hear your prayers, God will incline his ear to you, but don't miss the warning side of this, that if you fail to love your wife and to live with her in an understanding way, showing honor to her as the weaker vessel, here's what you risk. You lose the ear of God. Your prayers will be hindered. This is such a strong word. The prayers of the husband will be blocked. They will lose their effectiveness. God will not listen to you. I, I, I can only think of it like this. You know, I have a daughter, and, and I can envision the day where she gets married. But can you imagine if her future husband treated her with such disrespect and disdain? He was so unkind and dishonoring and unloving toward her, and yet, and yet this, this man whom she married decides that he wants to call me up from time to time to ask favors of me. Hey, hey, Dad, uh, mind if I come by and borrow the truck? Hey, Dad, mind if I, I uh, borrow some money? Hey, let's go hang out. Let's go have a good time together and hang out. I would look at that man and say, Son, I love you, but me and you are not okay because of how you are choosing to treat my daughter. That's my daughter. And you need to treat her as such. And when you do, I will incline my ear to you. Because there's so much at stake with how we live together in this beautiful institution of marriage. It's possible that Peter 
also has in view here the joint prayer of the couple. And, and if that's true, he's saying simply this, that here, listen, husbands and wives, you're called to pray together. But your prayers are so ineffective if your relationship is soured by sin. One author said it like this, I'll put it on the screen, piety becomes hollow and false. Holiness becomes hollow and false if it is not expressed in the closest of human relationships. Marriage is not a sacrament conveying divine grace, but it is the human relationship that God has designed to mirror the love of Christ for the church and of the church for Christ. There is an opportunity here to see the call of God on your lives, both husbands and wives. To be those who are committed to prayer for one another and for the purposes of God in this world and for your lives and for your marriage and for your kids. You see, marriage matters deeply. The health of our marriages have the potential to display the beauty of the gospel. Or they have the potential to diminish the beauty of the gospel. One thing is clear as we look at a text like this. In one sense, everyone marries the wrong person. Every one of us is broken by sin. But if we fix our eyes on the right person, we can be made like him and be a blessing to the person that God has given us to learn and love as we live out the gospel together for the glory of Jesus Christ.